Meditation is the work of the mind, Sado Tejaniya says. But he goes on to acknowledge that the work of awareness is just to know. However, awareness alone is not enough. Because the purpose of practice is to grow in wisdom. And it is the work of wisdom to understand what is skillful and what is unskillful. So I want to speak tonight about these statements by Sayadaw and to point to our experience today that confirms what he says and to uh, reveal the path ahead, if you will, of our practice by what he says. So he says the meditation is the work of the mind. Have you been anywhere or done anything today where your mind was not present? I didn't say where your awareness was not present, but where the mind was not present. No matter how fast you go or what you do, the mind is always there. Awareness training is to know what the mind's doing. And we can know what the mind is doing in any activity, not just sitting quietly with our eyes closed in a room with others, but while doing our yogi job, while walking to and fro, while standing outside hoping for a sunset. All that we do requires the mind to be there. And yet, so much of what we do, we're unaware of. So meditation is really the work of recognizing what the mind is doing. The simple act of being aware requires a tremendous amount of mental activity, including paying attention. But paying attention requires that we, or that the mind actually touch the object, or touch the experience, touch the present moment's content, if you will. And with that touching there arises a feeling, or we could say, that the mind feels, and that's a verb. But even that, attention, contacting, feeling, is not enough, because without awareness itself, there's no perception to recognize what the experience is. And to go on further to be able to identify it, to name it, to have an opinion about it requires additional mental activity. Meditation is coming to know this full range of mental activity, to be aware of it, to to recognize it happening. And while we all love our body, and I'm glad we all have one. 
the, the body really doesn't know anything. It is the mind that knows all that is. Because the body, without the mind, is a corpse. And while there may be an eye and an ear and a body and a skin and all that, it doesn't know, it doesn't feel, it doesn't perceive, it doesn't contact, it doesn't hear, it doesn't see anything because there's no mind. All that we know of life is due to the mind. Meditation is the work of this mind coming to know the activity of the mind. The work of awareness, Sayadaw says, is just to know. Awareness just knows. That's it. It is the presence of mind. It is knowing the presence of mind and recognizing it. Mindfulness is, of course, as we all know, attending to the present moment. The function of awareness is to remember. You know, if somebody says, what, 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 what are you doing on retreat? Oh, I'm practicing awareness, practicing mindfulness. Yeah, and, and, and why? It's to remember. It's to remember th- this present moment. Actually, this is it. In this moment, there is nothing else. Just this moment. And that's what we pay attention to in order to come into the understanding and come to come into the realization that in this moment, this is it. No matter what we've experienced in the past or what we think we're going to experience in the future or what we hope to experience at any time, all of those memories, all of those plans, all of those hopes happen in a present moment. There is no past. There used to be a, a big sign upstairs painted on a big cloth. The true yogi has no future. Think about that. The future is just a thought in the mind. All that you have imagined about your future. Later today, this evening, tomorrow, end of retreat, next month, next trip, next... is just a thought. There is no more reality to it than that. If we don't recognize that it's just a thought, if we invest in the content of that thought, we've missed the significance of the fact of this present moment. Not here. So the function of awareness is to remember the present moment. Now, is it so difficult? when you hear the instructions in the first sitting after breakfast and there's one of us is sitting up here narrating what to do. Sit comfortably, relax the body, relax the mind, direct your attention here, notice this, notice that. It's not difficult to do. It's difficult to remember to do. We forget. And so the function of mindfulness is just that. It's to remember. And so 
as simple as we try to make it, we're hoping that you will internalize the instructions to remind yourself, that you will prod yourself to remember. And in fact, eventually, we do. We do learn to remember. When I was practicing here with Upandita the first time he came to America, I wasn't doing too well with my practice. I wasn't uh, really with it yet. And I was reporting to him upstairs, as we all were every day. And the person that I followed just in front of me was doing exceptionally well in her practice. And I was standing in the hall outside waiting to see him one day, and I heard her just excitedly exclaiming to Sayadaw how clear her awareness was and that she was remembering past lives and was just having a phantasmagorical time. And I was like, okay, okay. So she came out, I went in, did my bows, and in my utter frustration with my own practice, I kind of blurted out to him, what are we supposed to be doing here anyway? Remembering our past lives or something? And he looked at me quite calmly and said, no, remembering this life. This life. Just this moment of life. The characteristic of awareness, mindfulness, is to actually become intimate with the present moment's experience. To actually taste the present moment. To so contact the present moment that the mind just settles into it and, and, and takes up the flavor of the present moment. Not just skimming along the surface, barely recognizing, barely touching the experience. As I mentioned the other night, Sayadar Upandita also says, A life without awareness, a life without mindfulness, is like food without salt. It's kind of got a texture and a shape, but the flavor just is pretty bland. So too with a life without awareness. You can get by, but it's pretty bland. Awareness or mindfulness manifests as facing... They say, facing the object without distortion. It's like looking in a mirror and not one of those funny mirrors. It's seeing things as they are without spin. You know, you watch the news or you're part of the news. And after every news article or news show, whatever it is, the spinmeisters come on and give you their opinion of what happened, their interpretation, their analysis of what happened. Mindfulness is the real deal. It's like what you see is what you get. No spin. Can you watch the news of your life without a commentator? That's mindfulness. Mindfulness asks you to watch your life. And not to put any spin on it, not to put a favorable spin or any rationalization or any justification or any 
but just to see, oh, th this is the way it is. Mindfulness or awareness is accompanied by a quality of mind called ujjukata, and it is the inability to deceive yourself. Mindfulness has no spin. It sees things as they are. And sometimes we don't like what we see. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't lie. It's not deceptive. And when mindfulness is strong, we cannot deceive ourselves. And so you may have had the experience of recalling something from the past in your life. You know, that personal history review that we all seem to go through. Recalling something from the past and seeing it, feeling it, understanding it from a different perspective or having a different perception of it than we did at the time it occurred. Why? Well, mindfulness doesn't spin. When we said and did what we did back then, we were heavily into, well, our self-justifying, self-rationalizing, self-enhancing, adoring, saving, safety-making, whatever it is, ourself. And now that's long gone by, and we see it as it really was. We really did say something not so skillful, even though we felt justified at the time. And we see that. Mindfulness doesn't lie when it's accompanied by this straightness of mind. Now, the proximate cause for mindfulness, I'm sure you're all interested because we're trying to be mindful. And how, how do we do that? There are two. And the first is, well, if the prior moment was a mindful moment, the subsequent moment is more likely to be. The chicken or the egg, which is coming first? Well, there's a first somewhere. But the second proximate cause for awareness, a moment of awareness, is clear perception. Clear perception is the recognition of the uniqueness of a moment. It's clearly grokking it, so to speak, getting what the unique flavor of this experience is. Every moment, every experience has its own, what we call, unique nature. You know, heat that you experience in the body feels very different than ache. And we know that because, well, heat has its own unique properties, its own unique nature. Aching has its unique nature. Fear has its unique nature. Excitement has its unique nature. Every experience has its own, well, uniqueness. When we really are clear about what the uniqueness of this moment is, it supports continuity of mindfulness into the next moment. If we're vague, if we're a little diffuse, if we're a little weak in our energy, and we're kind of more or less there, but not really taking note of the distinctiveness of this moment, we're likely to drift even further from the present in the next moment. I've talked about naming your experience. 
just putting a one-word label on your experience. It's a technique. It's a tool. It's not the goal. But it does help clarify perception. So when you find yourself drifty, or you find yourself, you know, getting up from a sitting saying, I think I was mindful, but I can't remember anything that I experienced. Well, pick up the tool of naming for a while. Use it to clarify the perception. Perception is a mental muscle. It can be strong and clear, or it can be very weak, diffuse, and if we strengthen it, it will be there for us. And a little bit of training in clarifying perception goes a long ways in practice. Some people say, yeah, but it's just filling my mind up with words. It's just stopping the flow of experience. Yeah, that's right. I agree. And it supports continuity of awareness. In every moment, something is being known. You know, two-dimensional, three-dimensional instructions. In every moment, something is being known. Knowing is kind of like this. You know, kind of a, a shaky, rattly, kind of dynamic hand rather than pointing like this. Knowing is kind of, kind of hovering around the present moment, taking it in. So, what is it that is known? I'm sure if we could spend the rest of the evening identifying different things that have been known today. Some of you have chosen to know a primary object. Some of you have chosen to know predominant objects. Others of you have recognized or known random adventitiously arising objects. Any and all, easily known. There's no preference, really, whether it's primary, predominant, or a choiceless object. But the nature of those objects that we see, some are physical, some are mental. When we feel, or when we're aware of, physical objects, We're aware of our posture, whether we're standing, sitting, walking, lying down, reaching, bending, turning, twisting, lifting. I hope you've noticed all those today because that's what was happening. Were you there for it when it happened? In a closer look at the actual experience of the body, we see what in Buddhist language or in the Buddhist teachings are referred to as the elemental nature of the body. We could say when we hold our arm out in front of us, and I might ask you to do that, just hold your arm out in front of you like this. This is called holding your arm out in front of you. <laughs> so you could say, I could say, well, what, 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 do, what do you notice? Well, I notice my hand and my shoulder and my arm out in front of me. And that's not wrong, but that's not very intimate. So when I say, well, what do you feel in this experience? Well, what do you feel? Heaviness, 
coolness, tightness, aching, trembling, pulsing, vibrating. Okay, you can put your arm down. Or you can put down the pulsing, vibrating, throbbing, tingling, warm, aching thing. (laughs) Because in fact, we do not directly experience muscle, hand, elbow, shoulder. We only experience the elemental nature of the body, which, as we see, is aching, hardness, tightness, tension, throbbing, pulsing, metaphorically referred to as the four elements of earth, air, fire, and water. We don't need to identify whether throbbing is hardness, earth element, air element, water element. We don't need to do that. We just need to know that the direct experience of the body is not anatomical. And yet, when we first try to pay attention to the body, you know, when we try to feel the breath at the nostrils or try to feel the rising falling of the abdomen as we breathe in and out, we can't help but have an anatomical map that we direct our attention to. We don't know how to locate our body without an anatomical map, without awareness. And so initially there's a lot of conceptual overlay in our experience of the body. But in time, when the mindfulness strengthens and we're able to directly experience the body, then we can kind of slip through the conceptual overlay and actually feel the elemental nature of the body. The body is one major source of objects to be known. The mind is the other. And what we see in the mind is, includes the natural activity of mind. When I talk about the natural activity mind, I mean the thinking, planning, narrating, commenting, cognizing, cognitive activity of mind. We see a lot of this. We see a lot of liking, disliking, reacting, responding, figuring out, commenting on liking, disliking. This is natural activity of mind. We aren't supposed to somehow be able to stop that, get rid of it, or or sit in judgment of it. This happens. We can't live without it happening. The task of awareness is to recognize when it's happening. To be able to choose when to pick it up, when to make something of it, when to put it down, and how to put it down. So there's the body, there's the natural activity of mind, there's the natural functions of mind that we also notice. The natural functions of the mind are, for example, feeling pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. This is not an activity that we're ever going to get rid of. This is not something that we're going to kind of bring under our immediate control. This is a natural function of the mind to feel. So too is perceiving or discerning, recognizing, which we sometimes experience is a lot of judging. But we can't live without the ability to discern very refined distinctions between different experiences, different people, different bananas, if you will. It's how we as a a species have been able to survive making these very refined distinctions. It's when we get attached to the distinction 
that it causes suffering. And so we are quite naturally going to see the discerning activity of the mind. Practice is not to somehow stop that or to judge that or to kind of put it aside or to disown it. It's to see it as a natural activity of mind and not to get identified or resistant to what the natural discerning capacity of the mind is telling you. We also see the body, the mind, the natural activity of mind, the natural function, functioning of the mind. We also see the nature of the mind, the way the mind knows experience. There are many ways that the mind knows. There's just the pure cognizing. You know, you look outside and you see a tree. You don't see a tree, you see color in a shape, actually. That's one level of knowing the present moment. But because we understand and we have a concept, we have an understanding of what tree is, we can interpret that shape and color as a tree. And if we have more knowledge and training, we can understand it as a maple tree, an oak tree. And along with that comes an understanding of its place in the ecosystem, its value as a, uh, a lumber or a timber, its life cycle as a living organism, and a whole proliferation of knowledge appears about what is seen. But in the actual fact of seeing, it's just shape and color. And all of the rest of that knowledge is massaged in the mind out of that shape and color. with very subtle, precise, continuous, powerful awareness, you can see this activity of mind. You can see the mind massaging raw data into meaning, into value. There's much to be known. The objects of our attention are constantly changing What's important in the development of awareness is not necessarily or not predominantly what is being known. While there is something being known in every moment, what's important is recognizing the knowing, recognizing the awareness of the object. Even when you try to attend to a primary object, a chosen object, a single object, well, I'm sure you've already discovered that it's not easy. And quite adventitiously or uninvitedly, other things crowd into the mind to be known. What's important in all that is not what is being known, but the fact of knowing and being aware of it. A large part of the task of, of we who come to practice is to catalog the variety of known experience, physical, mental. And just to understand this is what is being known of the body, of the mind, and to catalog them. Because all that we experience through the sense doors is conditioned, sure to cause 
suffering if we attach to it or if we're averse to it. So the work of meditation is the work of the mind, but the work of awareness is just to know. However, Sayadaw goes on to say, awareness alone is not enough, as if that wasn't enough. And what does he mean by that? Well, he means that when we're aware and we register what the present moment's experience is, we will have a relationship to it. We'll have a relationship that's either skillful or unskillful. We'll either understand, and this is what's important, awareness alone is not enough. We need to understand how we understand. We need to recognize how we understand this experience, whether it's skillful or unskillful. Because an unskillful or a wrong understanding of experience leads to suffering. A correct or right understanding, a skillful understanding, is a way of understanding experience that leads to the end of suffering. We need to remember when we hear this, or when we reflect on or reconsider, why am I here? that the Buddha was concerned with one primary thing, suffering and the end of suffering. And while he too was asked many metaphysical questions about existence and non-existence and the size, shape, and length of the universe and and eternity and, and all that that's fascinating to speculate on, he was very clear in pointing out that even if you knew all that, you would still suffer. And you might spend your whole life seeking answers to questions that don't relieve you of that suffering. And so he was quick and insistent in pointing out that which leads, that which is suffering, that which leads to suffering, and that which leads to the end of suffering. Because that is the work of practice. That's what the Buddha was concerned about. When Sariputta, the Buddha's right-hand monk, was asked about right view and how one acquired right view, how one acquired the skillful view, he said there's two things. One is you need to hear it from someone else first. Now this is so counterintuitive to our own experience. Probably all of us believe what we see, what we hear. We believe that we know for sure, clearly, the way it is for us. Well, the Buddha didn't think so. We know it from a very self-centric point of view, and that's the problem because that's the source of the suffering. And so the Buddha said, you need to hear how how to understand experience in a way that leads to the end of suffering. And what we offer here, try to offer here, through the discourses in the evening, through the instructions, through the answers to questions, is how to understand your experience so that when you practice, 
you can confirm it for yourself and hopefully see for yourself that this understanding is the way to the end of suffering. Metaphysically right or wrong, not so important. What's right is, or skillful in the Buddhist teaching, is what leads to the end of suffering. If right view, being heard from someone else, and careful attention, the second condition, are so important, out of all of the experiences that we notice today, all the objects that we were aware of, what is the right view of them? What view should we have of them in order to practice in a way to not suffer? If right view is so important, and we have been observing all day, how should we understand what we've seen? There are a few things. First, we should understand that everything we experience, physically and mentally, is nature. It's natural. There's no mistakes. There's nothing unnatural about it. It is all meant to happen the way it's happening, due to causes and conditions. Sometimes we like to think, you know, this is a mistake. I shouldn't be experiencing this. Or, you know, my mind shouldn't be doing this. Or my body shouldn't be doing this. There's something wrong with me. There isn't. There isn't anything wrong with the way the body's doing its thing or the mind's doing its thing. It is all a result of natural law, if you will. It is the nature of the body to be hot, to be cold, to ache, to experience pain, or to feel pain. It's a natural activity of the mind to think, to discern, to feel, to evaluate, to like, to dislike. There's no mistakes. There is nothing outside of the field of awareness. Nothing outside of the field of awareness. And so we, we don't really need to censor or edit our experience at all. Now, we know that we do, because we want to have good experience. We want to have experience that confirms we're practicing well, that we're almost enlightened, and that is going to get, well, that we're going to at least feel good about. I was practicing, I went to Burma to practice with uh, Saito Upandita, and I was very on fire. I was really lit up and just had a lot of enthusiasm, probably too much enthusiasm to practice. And so every day I was doing my 20 hours of sit and walk and reporting to him at 2 o'clock in the afternoon every day. And for the first couple of weeks, I could see day by day, things were getting more painful. I mean, (laughs) my mindfulness was getting better. I was seeing things in greater detail. Everything was getting more intense, including pain. But I could see that there was a momentum growing. One day I got up, did my practice, and it was completely shot. I could not remember from one minute to the next what I was supposed to be doing. I couldn't find the, I couldn't remember to pay attention to the breath, and I, when I did, I couldn't find it. I couldn't experience anything. My mind was a chaotic mess. So I thought, geez, I must have done something wrong. 
So when my time came to go see Upandita to give my report, I didn't want to go because I didn't have anything to say that was, well, self-enhancing. So, <laughs> so, so I kind of went to the door, you know, and it, in those days you, you would enter the door, you'd walk across the room about over to where Bart is, and uh, so I'd be sitting in a chair, and you'd go do your bows, you'd say what your experience was, it'd be translated, and uh, he'd say something back, it would be translated, you'd get your advice for the day and, and move on. Well, I just stuck my head in the door and said, I, I don't think I'll report today. <laughs> and normally Sayadaw is sitting in his chair writing the Dharma talk for the evening and when I said that he goes huh? <laughs> well, he says what, what's going on? I said I, I got nothing to report to you <laughs> and of course he is so perceptive he knows exactly what's going on more than I did so he said oh no come in come in come in, come in. Come, tell me what's going on you know, and some of you have heard stories of Upandita, how fierce and demanding he is as a teacher. And he is fierce. He really gets you to work in a, in a most vigorous fashion. But this day, he was so soft and so gentle and so concerned and so receptive and so like your best uncle. And it was like totally out of character, I thought. But he got me to kind of babble on about how bad it was and how I and I just I don't know what happened. And the more I talked about how bad it was, the happier he got. <laughs> At the end of which he said, "You know, sometimes when the yogis think they're doing really good, the teacher knows. Well, okay, but." And sometimes when the yogi thinks they're really doing terrible, the teacher knows they're really doing good. That was so that was just invaluable advice. Because after that, I did not bother to evaluate, interpret, censor, or edit my experience. It's like I did not care because I knew I did not understand. It is such a relief not to sit in judgment of your experience. To just take it as it appears, that's it. We're not evaluate, to not have to evaluate it from a, well, a distorted perspective. A self-aggrandizing perspective is such a relief. Please hear this. You don't need to censor or edit anything. It's all natural activity of mind and body. And it will be revealed in practice. The right view. All mental and physical phenomena arises. It's natural. It's nature. It arises due to causes and conditions. There's no mistakes. While we often do not know the causes and we do not know the conditions, there's no mistakes. And as Saito Tejaniya reminds us, the mind is not yours. You don't control the mind, but you're responsible for it. Whatever comes up in the mind, you have to deal with. We, each one of us has to deal with how are we going to respond 
or how are we going to react to what is being known? That's, that's our responsibility. We don't get to choose what we know, but we have to choose how to respond. All that arises due to these causes and conditions follows natural law. There are biological laws, there's physical laws, there's the law of karma, there's the law of the process of the unfolding of the mind, and there's dharmic law. When we observe these laws, or as we observe experience, we will only see these laws in operation. A third or fourth final understanding or right view of objects to be known, they're impersonal. They are conditional. They don't belong to you. They're not you. They're not yours. They're not who you are. Well, this is very counterintuitive because everything feels like it's, well, it's all about me. You know, it's me and mine and who I am, what I experience in this body, what I experience in this mind. And the Buddha in his second discourse to the five ascetics that he had practiced with said, thus should you see all these things, all these experiences, as not me, not mine, not who I am. Now that's not a kind of a psychological disowning of experience. We need to own our experience. But we need to see through the attributing it to, or attributing it to some enduring entity in here. You just need to hear that. You don't have to believe it. You just need to practice. If you have heard it, and you've taken it in, and you practice, in time, you will have confirming experience. You will have a confirming understanding that what the Buddha said is true. Or, it is a useful way to understand experience in order not to suffer. This is a very important point, a very important understanding in practice. When we're identified with our experience, we say, I'm excited, I'm happy, I'm joyful, I'm angry. And that's the feeling. But that's a very strong identification of self, I, with object. When we feel that we own, or that it's part of us, this is my anger, my joy, my fear, my excitement, we're weaving a story, a narrative. We weave all the experience of our mind into the narrative of our life. You know, here I am, yogi on retreat, day number four. How am I doing? Pretty good sitting before breakfast. That was pretty good. You know, not too much pain. And it just happens automatically. We own, we take up as if it was mine. It is so important to notice when you're narrating your experience because the narrating is what weaves an impersonal event into the story of my life. And then you've got to live with it. 
You don't like the story of your life? Well, don't weave it like that. <laughs> Change the warp and the weft. Get something else in there. But without awareness, we don't see that we're creating the story of our life out of, well, impersonal experiences. Why it's so important to really begin to see and understand the activity of the mind, the narrating, the rehearsing, the identification, the ownership of it. The identification and the ownership are so different than awareness of joy, awareness of the nature of excitement, awareness of the nature of anger, awareness of the nature of whatever else you've experienced today. Ownership, identification, and awareness. Three very, very different experiences. And yet, when the object arises, whatever it is, physical and mental, we will have one of those relationships to it. We'll own it, we'll identify with it, or, with practice, we'll be aware of it. It is the awareness that leads to the end of suffering. The other two lead to suffering. As I've mentioned previously, there's two skillful techniques for working with this, well, habitual conditioning of mind and to develop strengthened or strengthening awareness. And that is first to understand that what we're observing, even though it feels so personal, is to articulate it impersonally. So rather than saying to ourselves, I'm so angry, to reframe that, anger is being known. The nature of anger is being known. We identify the object, anger, or joy. The nature of joy is being known. We identify it as an independently impersonally arisen experience. We didn't invite it. We can't control it. We didn't make it happen. We can't make it go away. When the causes and conditions are there, it will arise. And then to put it in the passive voice, it's not I'm knowing. I'm not the knower. I'm the observer. I'm not the observer. It's in the passive voice. It's just being known. Later on, we're going to ask you a very simple question. You know, anger is being known. The nature of fear is being known. The nature of aching is being known. The nature of depression is being known. The nature of thinking is being known. The nature of judging is being known. The nature of being known. Known by what? Awareness. Where? Where is it? It's known, but is there anybody back here knowing this? The purpose of practice, Sayadaw says, is to grow in wisdom. The way we grow in wisdom is to develop awareness. Without awareness, no wisdom. Not possible. Because awareness pays attention to the way things are. Wisdom is understanding correctly the way things are. Without awareness, no wisdom. 
So as we pay attention to our experience, you'll see all of this mental, physical activity. And you see this mental activity that is just incessant. You know, judging, thinking, liking, disliking, commenting, narrating, rehearsing, etc., etc. If we don't see it, we can't let go. So don't be concerned if you're noticing a lot of thinking, a lot of judging, a lot of evaluating, a lot of rehearsing. Without seeing it, how can you let it go? When I first started uh, Dharma practice, it was a few years after I got out of university. And when I was in university, I studied engineering. And in those days, we didn't have handheld calculators. We had slide rules. And so we had to do a tremendous amount of longhand mathematics. So I had spent years doing very complex mathematics with pencil and paper and mind power. So I go to retreat. When my mind wandered, it would wander into calculating complex mathematical formulas, (laughs) multiplying and dividing four and five digit numbers, holding it all in my head like a human computer. Just like... (laughs) I didn't realize I was doing that until I started developing awareness. And then I'd I'd find myself wandering mind just... And I'd say, do I have to be doing this now? (laughs) If you don't look, you won't see. If you don't see, you can't let go. So you should be happy. You should be congratulate yourself, really, when you discover the mind's habits. The thinking, the commenting, the judging, the evaluating, the self-deprecation. They're habits. They're just habits of mind. And until you see them, they run, they rule the roost. But when you see them, you can learn how to let go. So when you see these activities of mind, it's not a judgment of your practice. It's not a comment on how well you're doing. It's you're doing well if you see these. So remember that when you see this incessant activity. I mean, it's not pleasant. But if you don't see it, you can't let go. The way to foster this kind of practice is to just ask yourself, or to remind yourself, the mind is always knowing something. The mind is always knowing something. What is being known? You don't have to make it happen. You don't have to create it. You don't have to go searching in some obscure or subtle place. Just Ask your mind, what is being known? What is being known now? And when you recognize it, also ask, what's your relationship to it? What is the color of the lens on the mind through which you are seeing this object? Is it one of desire, blue? Is it one of aversion, red? Is it one of disinterest, yellow? Is it... Because... Every object, we already have an established relationship with it. And so we want to know what that is, whether it's wholesome or unwholesome. If it's unwholesome, we exercise some caution. If it's wholesome with awareness and kindness and generosity and understanding and whatever, fine, let it be. But we also want to notice how we are observing. 
how is this awareness happening? Is the awareness clear? Is the awareness uh, uh, light? Is the awareness heavy? Is the awareness uh, adaptable, agile? Or is it stiff? Is it demanding? Is it commanding? Is it heavy? And you can see this in your own mind. And then finally, what happens to this object? As you observe pain, thinking, emotion, whatever it is you observe, what happens to it? Because as you watch the unraveling, or if you watch the dissolution of states of mind, or emotions, or even physical sensations, you see how ephemeral, you see how evanescent, you see how insubstantial they are. If you just touch it briefly, you don't see the ending of it. It is important to see that, to really know how this came into being and how it leaves the mind. So we need to learn how to sustain the attention on objects that have called our attention. This mind that knows all this, that knows all these objects, where is it? What size is it? What color is it? What shape is it? The work of wisdom, Sayadaw says, is to understand what is skillful. What is skillful, what is unskillful, what leads to suffering, what leads to the end of suffering. We're not just looking for a temporary experience of calm, or clarity, or joy, or bliss. These all come and go. When conditions are ripe, they appear. When conditions dissolve, they go with it. Vipassana is the development of an understanding correctly or skillfully understanding all experience so that we do not get entangled with them in a defiled way and we can remain at ease with all things that arise. Remain in a state of equilibrium, if you will, where we let things happen. We don't push, we don't pull, we don't resist. We let things happen and we don't get entangled. Sayadaw says, practice like this is more like a marathon than a hundred-yard dash. It's a lifetime activity. We never stop learning. Vipassana is a learning process. And so we, we don't finish. We don't get done. And so bringing an attitude, a willingness to say to ourselves... <coughs> I'm in it for the long haul. We can get temporary relief. Shift your body, take drugs, you know, distract yourself. You can get away from whatever's bothering you. But it will come back. And until we accept the responsibility of life as a learning process and willingly engage it, we'll struggle. not accepting the way things are. Wisdom inclines towards the good, Sayadaw says, but is not attached to it. 
It shies away from what is not good, but has no aversion to it. Wisdom recognizes the difference between skillful and unskillful, and it clearly sees the undesirability of the unskillful. Wisdom inclines towards the good, but it's not attached to it. So let's sit for a moment and let the words quiet down. Meditation is the work of the mind. And while the work of awareness is just to know, awareness alone is not enough. Because the purpose of practice is to grow in wisdom, and it is the work of wisdom to understand what is skillful and not skillful. Thank you for listening to the Dhamma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.